Now I'm out 40 here, we're in Royal National Park, about uh, 20 miles outside of Sydney, listening to a podcast here, and the guest is Diana Fleischman, an evolutionary psychologist, she's married to Jeffrey Miller, she's working on a book called How to Train Your Boyfriend, the podcast host is Misha Saul, talking about this concept of stickiness when it comes to sexual relationships. And I think she's absolutely spot on. She's getting this from the Christians. Like now, in, in, even in my late 20s, um, if I dated somebody and we, uh, you know, we had a sexual relationship, I would like them, uh, but I wouldn't necessarily fall in love with somebody just because we spent a period of intense time together. It's propensity to fall in love. Propensity uh, to fall yeah. in love. Propensity. Yeah, stickiness. So I don't know if I was 22 first time had sex and the intensity of that bond was just incredible i i almost couldn't picture myself being with anyone else but but my girlfriend and so with your first sex partner the natural normal person is going to be incredibly tightly bonded to their first sex partner and then so I got into my 20s, I had more sex partners. Really, number two was the thing that just opened up Pandora's box. So I thought, oh my God, there's just so much, so much beauty and pleasure and there's so many possibilities out there to taste. And it just sent me off. But even in the first 10, right, I was still falling very deeply and passionately for women that I was intimate with. But once we start getting past 10 into the 20s and 30s, right, don't feel nearly as uh, bonded. Yeah, okay, got it. And that, that decreases as one gets older. Got it. I think that, that makes decreases sense. In, in men and especially among women. So one thing that I think that people don't appreciate is that for, for many women, not all women, like I know a woman who was having casual sex quite happily when she was 15. She never felt slighted by boys who didn't want to be in a relationship with Sure, her. but on average, but, I totally But on average, that, yeah. women use sex in order to uh, kind of foot in the door technique to try to get into a relationship with men a lot. And they are often disappointed when a man doesn't want to be in a relationship with them. And most women are not profoundly sexually motivated for sexual variety. And some women like it. Most women have no specific desire for it. Most women, if they have a lot of different sexual partners, um, it's because they're unusual in terms of their libido or because they're they're trying to assess their value in the marketplace and see who they might who might want to be in a long-term relationship with them. Uh, and men have somewhat different uh, preferences. So I think that what people are not talking about is yet yeah, this propensity to fall in love when one is young and about how the older you get, the pickier you get. Like in my case, I'm happy that I'm not sticky anymore, right? I'm, I'm glad that I can consciously and have chosen somebody who I have really a lot in common with because I think I would be a difficult mate for somebody who I didn't have a lot in common with. And I'm, um, I'm a very weird person. I'm a very unusual person. So, Yeah, that's true. The older you get, the pickier you get. So I'm 56 now. I'm a lot pickier than when I was 16, 26, or 36. I don't think that it, it would have made me happy uh, to settle down with my she earlier described him as being low IQ. She's, he told her that uh, his mother couldn't have any more children because she'd had a lobotomy.
Self-awareness, and I've heard on other other podcasts as well, is 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 like absolutely glorious. It's, it's one of my favorite things, and I, I appreciate you sharing that. I think your point really reinforces my original one in the sense that our culture today says, "Don't worry about it. Take your time. Go meet a bunch of folks." And yeah, so I could really do without most of Misha Saul's commentary here, and his questions are just so lengthy and ponderous, and then. He's always proposing theses that he wants uh, Diana to respond to. Like, come on, just ask a question. Uh, don't propound some lengthy thesis that you then need your guests to respond to. Really, as you, as you note, women probably seem to me on, on average as well to have a propensity to, um, you know, that goes against the grain. Okay, let me fast forward. Right, so I take your point as supporting my point. Yeah, don't do that as a host. Come on now. Or if fewer men ended up being uh, killed in wars. You know, there there were two big wars, obviously, in, in the last uh, 100 years um, or 120 years. But there weren't so many uh, as the you know, frequent skirmishes, and there weren't so many men who died. Uh, so I think that it was important that there was some level of polygyny or men having multiple uh, partners uh, previous to that so that all women could be partnered and so everybody had somebody to kind of look after them. Uh, with monogamy, I think that uh, you know what we saw was definitely like a de facto monogamy. Uh, very, very high status men. We're talking you know people like uh, royalty and dukes and lords and other people who are well-to-do it was totally fine for them to have mistresses or concubines and even support those uh, those women. And even now, if you look at uh, men who are high status in our society, yes, they tend to marry, but they often divorce their first wife, they marry somebody younger the second time around. And so there's a sort of de facto polygyny that's happening, but it's more socially acceptable because they're taking... Yeah, that's an interesting point. I didn't think of that. But, uh, yeah, high-status men do tend to go through a lot more wives than uh, medium and low-status men. And even if they don't, I've noticed that they feel their power. Like, the higher-status men feel their power. And I remember this one high-status man uh, commented something about his wife wasn't happy. And then he said, you know, what is she going to do? How is she going to do any better than me? It's like, yeah, it's like a brutal remark that he made to to me, an acquaintance. Uh, but, uh, you know, he definitely feels like he, he's wielding the power in the relationship. So I suspect that he gets his way more often than not. Because, yeah, what, what is, you know, a woman in her early 40s going to do? here on a path alone. I don't think there are any human beings for several miles. And like if I was to walk you know, into a bloke here on this very lonely path, 
Yeah, I'd feel much better if I knew he had at least a girlfriend, if not a wife. I mean, when you're out here, there's no one about. I haven't seen anyone on this trail, so I'm about uh, five miles into my walk into Royal National Park. It's a cool, rainy day. No one's out here hiking. It's just me alone in Royal National Park. Yeah, I'd much rather know that a bloke, you know, had a woman. about some you know, rather unpleasant parts of human nature here that go against the grain of uh, you know, the monogamous ideal of the, the Jewish and Christian ideals. But I, I, once again, I'm afraid she's right. Because one thing I've noticed, you know, obviously new things, okay. we haven't had real generational turnover, you understand what this actually looks like, so I think we're kind of hypothesizing at, at this point. I don't know how that kind of turns out and what the implications of that are. How do you think about it? So I, I agree with you that, yes, uh, our society is increasingly atomized and, you know, children don't necessarily grow up with their grandparents. And I think that problem is being exacerbated if I'm just going to, you know, talk about things from an economic perspective. In the United States, we've made it much, much easier to buy houses. We have very low financing. And what we really ideally would want is for people to be able to be more agile and to move around more. And I think part of that would make people able to go back to uh, maybe where their, their parents are, you know, if they have children. So I think that that's something that we uh, could incentivize, but we don't incentivize. Uh, and in addition to that, you know, when you, when you see... Um, grandparents looking after uh, grandchildren, things like that. Uh, not only do they take much better care of their grandchildren than, some, you know, than a daycare might, for example. So I'm thinking about an Asian girlfriend of mine. Uh, she grew up like sleeping three in a bed with her sisters. And uh, so for me, it's very difficult to sleep in the same bed with someone. Like I'm really used to my space because I effectively grew up as an only child because my brother and sister are a lot older, eight my brother's eight and a half years older, my sister's about 11 and a half years older. And so I, I, I always had my own room, pretty much. And so I'm really used to having my own space. And so it'd be really hard for me to, to compromise and to give that up. But when I do like experience more connection with family, it is wonderful. I was very impressed by the Asian students I met at UCLA who considered it a privilege to look after their parents. Problem that people aren't really thinking about, and you especially see this with, with COVID. I think in East Asia, where people do tend to live 
in extended family households, uh, there was a lot more uh, mourning about the people who died, whereas in the United States, uh, the majority of people who died were, were elderly people. And uh, I haven't even seen like moments of silence for people who died of COVID um, here in the U.S. or people who died in nursing homes. So I, I, there's so many aspects of, of our society that lend to that. Uh, my grandmother, who's now 93, uh, lives in Munich. And in Munich, there are elderly people on the street everywhere you go, doing their shopping, uh, you know, walking their dogs. It's a very, uh, very pedestrian friendly kind of area. And if you live in big cities where people only drive, you're never going to see elderly people even completely forget that they exist. And you've also moved away from your So that's a good thing about living in in traditional community, right? You see, see a lot more old people, young people. You see the whole age mix. So when I go to an Orthodox synagogue, it's not unusual to see three generations of family praying together, eating together. Once you've tasted your own space, it is, it is hard. It's like once you've tasted sexual variety, particularly as a man, it's very hard to uh, settle down, unless unless you've made that decision that you've reached that time in life where it's time for family and children. So for me, having my own space means uh, more space to write. Like writing is a private act. So I love to write and and to think, and so some privacy really helps with that. Is that uh, uh, people want to have privacy in part to eat and poop and to masturbate and do all those things as much as they want to, right? And those are things that are difficult uh, to get used to not having. So if you look at these like huge um, you know, American houses and the, the distance that people have um, where they don't have to, to talk to anybody who they disagree with that they might have a strong relationship with, it's very difficult to convince people that no, um, it's better for society if in fact uh, they move back in with their with their families. Oftentimes, you know, people have these far relationships. And politics, if you know, we're in an election season right now, uh, can only make that worse. If you look at the, the political sloganing that's going on right now, you know, if you have a, a mother or father who is pro-Trump or pro-Republican, it's not just that they have a different viewpoint than you, but they're they're positively evil. And it's almost got like a cult-like quality to it. You know, if you, if you join a cult uh, or if somebody you know has left the, the, the fold, you're supposed to completely uh, unperson them. And I think that there's a lot of unpersoning that's happening right now as well within families and friendships because of the very heated uh, kind of political climate that people who disagree with us are, in fact, uh, evil. So it's a very long and roundabout way of saying, I do think it would be better if people lived in more extended uh, family households, if people more often lived with people they were related to. And I, I think it would be really good if, if there was some incentive for that. I myself have thought a lot of times, and it may still happen in my life. So being in Australia, all right, I don't think I've heard a complaint about the Australian Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese. Right, granted, he's only about six months into his term, but politics just doesn't seem to have the same salience or valence, right? 
Salience means priority and valence refers to emotional intensity and uh, politics and culture war issues just don't seem to have the same intensity or priority here in Australia. Uh, the two political, major political parties are fairly similar and uh, don't think it's a great idea when we start cutting people out of our lives because of politics. asked about what are my highlights from my trip in Australia was it when I took this walk or that walk or when I was here or there and the highlights my trip are the time I spent with people whether in synagogue someone's home with my brother with my sister so my best memories are with people they're not at you know Mykonos and Santorini right these are beautiful Greek islands that I went there alone, didn't didn't have a lot of social interactions there, and I was just stunned at how the joy and pleasure and meaning I took from the trip to Greece for a week was less than 10% of what I had going to Israel, where I was with a whole crew. So I went on a Jewish Federation singles trip to Israel, and I, you know, we, we bonded, we, we connected, you know, we had that shared experience. We fed off each other's energy. And even though I, I started that trip, you know, sick, um, I, I still managed to get energized 